0: Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome back for what is our final week, the final week in our most recent sermon series, if you're just joining us for the very first time, a sermon series that we've been calling Neighborhood Disciples, Neighborhood Disciples. We uh, set out on a journey as we started 2023 to have a very honest conversation about what does it mean and what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in suburbia? Uh, We've been sort of unpacking this idea. Unpacking this idea that whether or not you're aware of it, whether or not we're even attuned to it, where you hear impacts what you hear. Where you were raised, who was around you, your teachers and your leaders, your storytellers, they formed what you and I heard. In terms of faith, they formed and they shaped who we understand God to be. And so the question we've been asking all along with this whole sermon series is, how has this context, this context not only that we inhabit, but over half of the American population inhabits, how has this context impacted who we understand God to be? In what ways has it helped us? In what ways has it harmed us? So again, today is the final week of this sermon series. You can catch any of these messages on the podcast or on our YouTube channel And today what we're going to do is we're going to end with what I believe to be the most important conversation for last. I think we've saved the last one, the best one for the last one. Each week what we've been talking about, and I shared this back in the week two, we've been talking about what are the different forces, what are the different voices at work in our lives in this context in which we're inhabiting. And so I shared that uh, in terms of suburbia, there's a gospel of Jesus, but there's also suburban gospels, the gospel of suburbia. In fact, there's four of them. Here's what they look like. Uh, if you live here long enough, you will know and you will hear these voices either inside of you or outside of you saying that you ought to be dedicated to convenience, that convenience is the most important thing in life, or abundance. It's all about getting more, acquiring more comfort. Let's make life as comfortable and as safe as possible. And the other one uh, that Suburbia talks a lot about is the gospel of advancement, that you and I are not finding meaning, we're not finding happiness, we're not finding fulfillment unless we're moving in our jobs, in our careers, in our lives. And so each and every week we've been unpacking these four. But I realized something. I realized something that as this conversation went on and my research got deeper, I realized that I was wrong. That there is actually not four Gospels of suburbia, but five. And today, we're going to talk about the fifth Gospel of suburbia, the fifth, the final, and what I believe to be the most powerful of them all. The one that you and I have been trapped in the moment we stepped foot in. This place. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the gospel of suburbia that we're going to talk about today is one that I can't beat. I won't win against this particular gospel. It's been so much in the water that you and I have drank that the best we're going to be able to do on the other side of today, the best we're going to be able to do is figure out how in the world do I live with this gospel in such a way that it does not completely influence, consume, overtake, and hijack my understanding of God, my understanding of faith, so much so that when the real thing is at my front door, I don't even recognize it. You curious what this uh, fifth gospel of suburbia is? Let's dive in. So if you have your Bibles with you or your smart devices and you want to sort of uh, walk along with us as we're unpacking this scripture, you can do so. Go and return back to Luke chapter 10, the passage you just heard Julie read a couple of moments ago. And the reason why we're camped out in this particular story is because this story here in Luke chapter 10 is a case study. It's a case study that's going to help reveal, it's going to help uncover what is the fifth and most powerful gospel of suburbia. So to give you a little bit of context of what's happening, uh, here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus' mission is gaining traction. It's gaining energy. It's gaining momentum. And so it's beginning to sort of spread like wildfire all over the region where Jesus is preaching. And so Jesus understands, like any visionary, Jesus understands that he's going to start putting some strategies in place to help make sure this movement moves forward faithfully. And so one of the strategies that he deploys is he starts sending in front of him people who will prepare the way for his coming. He sends people into the neighboring towns to make sure they know that Jesus is about to show up. And so we see this here in chapter chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord commissioned 72 others and sent them out ahead in pairs to every city and place he was about to go. In other words, he gave the church our very first mission assignment. He put us to work. And I don't want us to miss this. Because in so doing, what Jesus has done is right here at the jump, he has said, when it comes to my mission, this is not just a mission that I'm going to do to you, this ain't just a mission I'm going to do for you, but if you call yourself a part of the church, this is a mission I'm going to do with you. Here in this moment, Jesus is inviting us to participate in this world-changing this life transforming mission of redeeming and reconciling the world. Now, I'll be honest with you for a minute. Um, I was sitting with this passage uh, all week this week, and I couldn't help but realize, I couldn't help but immediately think of how big of a contrast that is from how we might define the mission of the church today. You see, the mission of the early church, the ekklesia, uh, the called out ones, that's the Greek word for what is the church, looked like this. Let's just do the who, what, when, where, and why with it, okay? Let's just break it all down, right? So the mission of the church the in Luke chapter 10, the early church, who? Who was the church? It was a diverse group of people. Some folks were a part of the religious establishment. Some people just like walked in on accident. Some people just had no idea. Some very, very deeply entrenched in faith and religious jargon. Some had no idea what they were talking about. So it's a diverse group of people called out by Jesus. Again, that's what ecclesia means, called out, called out ones. When were you the church? At all times. Where were you the church? In all places. Why? Because this mission that Jesus has called us to, it's going to require everybody if we want to redeem and reconcile this world. So that's the early church. And it's very interesting when you compare that to how we might think of church today in 2023. So let's go do some comparative analysis. So the church in 2023, who? It's made up of like-minded people, Right? Who do you go to church with most often? People who think like me, people who vote like me, people who believe like me, people who worship like me. Sometimes I step into church, and some of you like the way the hand-waving folks and the dancers and the things like that. Some of you walk in, you go, "Oh, that's not mine," and you walk right out. Right? So we want like-minded people. We want to be with people who are similar to us. And what is the church? For most of us, it's a building. It's a building. It's a geographical location. When does church happen? Sunday mornings, but now that online's available, sometimes I do it on my like Monday morning commute on the podcast, or sometimes, I understand, but it's, a, it's like a Sunday evening thing. Like my rhythm's kind of changed a little bit pastor. so that's where I have church now with my coffee table and my laptop. It's wonderful. And so where, where does church occur? Church primarily occurs here in the building, and those of you who are worshiping online, and it can happen in any one of those places, but those are the two. That's the only places that we talk about church occurring in the where, why? Why do you show up? Why do we participate in this thing? Why are we a part of these communities? Because, I don't know, I just was looking for a place to get a spiritual snack every once in a while. A little dose of hope. Feeling a little discouraged today. Needed someone to come and make me feel better. Right? Oh, pastor, that was, mm, mm. That was, mm mm-hmm. All right, well, time for lunch. Got to go. Got a lot of stuff to get to. Got a lot of commitments to get to. We got to move on with our lives. Some way, somewhere, somehow, we forgot. We straight up forgot. that church just isn't a place you go to. It's an identity. Church ain't just a place. It's an identity. It's a people group. It's a way in which you understand yourself. It's who you are. And the reason why we've gotten this twisted is because of this very mysterious fifth gospel of suburbia. Are you ready to know what it is now? You ready? The reason why we've gotten this so twisted is because the fifth and final, the most powerful gospel here in suburbia is something we might call the gospel of consumerism. The gospel of consumerism. Now, I know what you're thinking, like, I didn't really necessarily come to church looking for a lesson in American economics, and so um, that don't sound interesting to me, and I hear you. I totally understand, Uh, but track with me for just a moment. Track with me for just a moment, because what I'm about to walk you through is so incredibly important when you think about the impact it has upon your faith. Consumerism, was born at roughly the same time as the suburban phenomenon. Everybody creating these subdivisions and suburban spaces all over America. And about the early to mid-1900s, what happened was uh, there was an industrial revolution. So all the jobs and all of the folks are migrating to these urban spaces. They want to find jobs. They want to find a better place to live. And so they're producing goods. They're producing services. They're producing things for people so that people can consume things. They can improve their way of life. They can enhance their communities, all the things. But in the aftermath of the industrial revolution, what happened was there was an overabundance of goods. They did this too good. We as an economy, we as a society did this too good. And so we wound up with a ton of extras that nobody purchased, nobody bought. Household supplies, furniture, you name it. And so a really big shift occurred, not only in our economy, but in our way of life. What happened was, in the aftermath of this, two big shifts were made. Number one is suppliers, companies, the people in charge... Said, we're gonna switch this whole thing up. The supplier's no longer gonna be in charge. We're gonna put the consumer in charge. We're gonna put the customer in charge. We're gonna follow what they need, what they want, and we're gonna ask their opinions all the time of what it is that they need in their house or in their car or what have you. And so they're gonna drive what we purchase, or sorry, what we provide, because they're gonna be the ones who purchase it. This is why. Before a product ever even hits the shelves, it's gone through several iterations of studies to figure out if it's purchasable or not, if it's desired or not. This is why my 2016 Honda Odyssey minivan has a shop vac in it. They took a bunch of moms out to a minivan, and they said, what do you want? You can have the world. What do you want? And some mechanic walked out there. You know he did. He walked out there. He's like, I know. You want some more horsepower, don't you? And one mom said, yeah. Yeah. But in the vacuum, that's where I need the power. I got a 15 year old gummy bear stuck to the carpet, and I'm gonna try to pull this thing out for years. And so let's do that. That's what I want. And then bam, you got minivans with hardware tools attached to them. The consumer is now in charge. And the second thing that happened in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution is there was also this really strategic, this really clever thing that companies started to do. The economic term for this is uh, is called planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. What that means is, in the aftermath, companies started to get smarter. They started to realize, our products are actually too good. They're too reliable. They last too long. We need to reduce the shelf life of these so they keep coming back to us for more. How many of you have ever walked around your house and been like, they just don't make these like they used to anymore? You done this? This is our bed, okay? We bought a brand new bed two years ago made of metal. We have two children. We know. They jump all over our bed every single day. So we ain't dumb. We're like, we're going to buy the most sturdiest thing ever. Two years later, so two weeks ago, bam, broke. Because the companies know, if I build it in such a way where it looks good, it looks like it might last, but then it breaks, I get them coming back. Okay, so thank you for allowing me to give you a brief economic lesson. Who cares, why does this matter? It matters because when our whole society, our whole culture made those shifts, two things happened to you and you didn't even know they did. Two things happened to you and you had no idea that you were being trained by them. The first of which is this. When we made this shift, this consumeristic, all-in shift, the first thing that it trained you to think, the first thing it trained you to believe, is ah, the world will adapt to me. The world will adapt to what I need, what I want. We've come to expect That every place you step into, when you leave here today, those of you who go to a grocery store, you go to a restaurant, you go to any type of store, you are always right. You will get everything you need. It's all about you. Again, I did a deep dive, and I did some uh, studying of these, some statistics, and found this. Found this to be true. When they studied uh, consumers, and they asked them questions, they found this. They found that 75, 75% of consumers expect and they will not stand for an inconsistent experience across platforms. So what this means is, you go to Amazon, Amazon makes it so daggum easy. You can buy stuff and return it within 12 hours. And so you expect a consistent experience everywhere you go. And the moment, the moment a company can't offer you free returns or they can't just sort of send you a coupon you take it to the UPS store and they just ship it right back to them, the moment that there's no longer consistent experience, what you do is you bail. It's their problem. They did it wrong. They didn't do what I need. Same study found that 82%, 82% of consumers, they will not stick with an organization unless they offer immediate responses to their questions. If you don't have one of those little chat bots, on the back, on the sort of bottom of your internet screen so you can answer my questions about, well, how long am I going to get it? And is it a good size? And can I do like a virtual try-on situation where I hold my phone up in front and I can see what it looks like on me? If if that's not available, we leave and choose different companies. 87% of customers prefer to shop online rather than in person, 87%, most of us in this room. How many of you have ever uh, made a mistake where you've ordered from Target online and you ordered Target pickup instead of Target Drive Up? You done this before? It is the worst. Drive up, you pull right up, you park. I'm not in community at all. They bring it to me. Pickup, I did this on accident two weeks ago, and like some Neanderthal, I had to walk into the store. People in the drive-up lanes were just looking at me and laughing. <laughs> We're just sitting here in our car. It's raining out there. This is fine. We're not going to do anything. You're going to go in there and buy something? <laughs> this is the worst. That consumeristic culture, it taught you to expect that everybody is going to do whatever it is you need. And The second thing that they taught us, the second thing that it ingrained in us, it, it sort of almost warped us into believing was because there's now this planned obsolescence. Again, they've shortened the shelf life of all of the goods that we consume, so you keep coming back for more. What it's done is it's trained us to not only believe that the world will adapt to me, it's trained me to believe that if I don't like it, if I'm not interested in it, if I'm getting bored, uh, then I can pitch it. I don't have to stay committed to it. I don't have to like it. I liked it yesterday, but now I'm bored. It has taught us the reduced shelf life has also reduced our ability to commit to anything. The moment it isn't sexy or trendy or doing exactly what it is I need, I can pitch it, and it's fine. Anybody want to take a wild guess as to how often Americans replace their smartphones? year and a half, year and a half, 18 months, we replace our phones. At this rate, by the time you reach the end of your life, you will have owned 45 cell phones. If by comparison, you're like, that doesn't seem like a whole lot, that's a problem. Um, but if you're like, that doesn't seem like a lot, uh, the average American only owns eight cars, okay? But so it's a product of this. It's a product of what consumerism has done to us that, Well, if it's not interesting to me, or if it's not holding my devotion anymore, if I don't don't get a good, you know, rosy feeling about it anymore, then I don't have to commit to it, I don't have to hold on to it, and I don't owe it nothing. People, communities, objects, the whole daggone thing. So Now, put the comparative picture up there, again, of the two churches, the church of Luke chapter 10 and the church of today. It makes sense, doesn't it? Now, it makes a whole lot of sense why we understand and see and view church this way. Church, for many, is simply a good to be consumed. It is a service you provide for me. And again, I'm not trying to be too dire, but most people will not defeat that belief You, on this side of heaven, you will not win unless you move out of suburbia and you live in the desert somewhere. And so the key is, how in the world do I live with this really powerful, influential voice? How do I live with it? And I live with it in such a way that, again, pun intended, doesn't consume me. It doesn't consume my entire outlook on the world and of God so much so that when I reach the life to come, I don't even recognize that Jesus dude because it looks so different than the picture I created that this gospel created in my mind. So if that's you... Let's go back to our story for today because here in Luke chapter 10, here in the early church, we see a couple of really pivotal things. We see a couple of really really important things that if we implement them, they help us sort of counteract this powerful force of the gospel of consumerism. Go back to verse chapter 2 or chapter 10 of verse 2. It reads this way. Jesus says to them, so he just sends them out. And as he's sending them out, as he's sending them into the neighboring towns, he gives them a job, he gives them a mission. He says this. Know this that as you go out and do this work, the harvest is bigger than you could ever imagine. The potential, the possibilities of what we could do, it's greater than you could ever imagine. The problem is, there's such few workers. So plead, do the work and plead that other people are gonna come along and help us with this work. How I translate that in 2023 language is Jesus is saying this. We've heard the uh, translation, uh, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. I hear that in 2023 language as Jesus saying, oh baby, there's plenty of customers, but ain't nobody working. There's plenty of people out there who want to receive. I can't find nobody who wants to give. Jesus is saying in this whole commerce of kingdom work, there's way more people who would much rather sit and absorb and receive and and sort of consume than ask, how might I help? How might I be a part of the solution out in the world? And so the response here, very, very clearly, very, very succinctly, you know what it is? response number one, if you wanna learn how to live faithfully amidst this really powerful force that we're living in, you need to be someone, you need to be a Christian who both consumes and contributes. You're gonna have to make a decision that you're going to consume and contribute to the work that needs to be done in the world. You're going to show up to church. You're going to show up to your devotions. You're going to show up to your small group, and you're going to look to learn and glean and receive new things. And at the the next breath, you're going to ask God, okay, but God, what do you need from me? So often when you and I start praying, we start this way. We say, God, I need fill in the blank. When was the last time you ever dared to pray, God, what do you need? What do you need? Where do you need me? What do you need me to do? Where is the world starving for more of you and less of us? There was a stat done by uh, Christianity Today that found this. They found that uh, church volunteership, and I'm not, this is not like a, so the solution is just serving church. That's not, that's one part. That's a buckshot of the solution. But Christianity Today found this, I found this would be symptomatic of a larger problem. They found that right now in churches, volunteership is the lowest it's ever been in American Christianity. Somewhere hovering around 35%. Only one in three people are saying, you know what? I have a responsibility not just to receive, but to help make it happen. So, Kyle, what does that look like? What does it look like to be someone who both consumes and contributes? Well, let's just make it super practical. One of the first things is it's reimagining your involvement in this place. Reimagining your investment and your commitment in places like this, your community of faith, your faith family. What I tell to folks all the time is that a healthy diet, a healthy Christian diet for your engagement with church is what I call the 211 rule. The two-one one rule. You should make it your aim. This isn't a law. This isn't a, like a rule in a sense of like if you break it, you're, you know, God hates you or mad at you or whatever. But it's like a, it's something to aim at that on a healthy day, on a healthy month, I'm worshiping twice, I'm serving once, and I've got one flex week built in so that if I just have an awful week, an awful time at work, or we've been traveling like crazy, I get the chance to have some Sabbath rest and breathe again and let God breathe into me and my family again. The problem is most times that I suggest this to folks, I say, let's talk about the two-one-one one rule. They're like, yeah, but like what? How about like a one 3 rule? Like you got any space for that sort of situation? Like I got, I got, I can commit to that. I can do it once a month and then three mental health Sundays. I can do uh, something in that situation. The problem is the longer that that's the case, the more stuck this movement remains. And friends, it's not just about coming to church. Good God. Like this is, I get passionate about this when people are like, you just want me to come to church more. Sure. But the thing is, is that that almost always leads to more. It leads to you asking bigger questions. The more that you're here, the more that this is a center, stable part of your life, the more you begin to ask yourself questions of, man, like this is, how do I do this now beyond the four walls of this place? And so you begin to ask yourself the question of like, Who might be some people in my life that I can share on social media, share a message that really connected with me, or maybe it's a podcast that I listened to, or maybe it's a book that I read. I need to start thinking a lot more about where God has strategically placed me and how I might be an instrument, I might be a conduit of hope and grace and maybe reconstructing a beautiful, much richer picture of who Jesus is that they've never had access to. Maybe for you it's just inviting, it's being more inviting with your life, looking around saying, Who might need an invitation to what we're doing here or what I'm doing in my small group or what have you? Check this out. We want to take a guess of how many people, the survey found this, how many people would come to church if somebody invited them? And an invite, by the way, can happen in person. It can also happen via text message. Both are equally as effective. You want to know? One in three. One in three. I did the math. That means that if everybody who ever who calls the peak home, if everybody today who calls the peak home said, you know what, I'm going to make three, uh, I'm going to take three open-ended invitations to people that I know who might be looking for community, they might be looking for faith, they might be looking for a place to sort of reconstruct and re-engage for a, a faith and a relationship with God. If everybody in this church decided to do that, you want to know the impact you'd have. By the end of this calendar year, there would be five, at least five hundred people. 500 people who are currently disconnected, disillusioned, disenfranchised with the whole faith thing, who have found a home. But it's going to require us to do both. You've got to consume, and you've got to contribute. There's this quote that I read in seminary that the first time I read it, I never forgot it. and It's been haunting me every day since. Teresa of Avila said this. She said, What if? She just pondered this question. She pondered this question that we as Christians need to think about right now. We need to take responsibility for right now. She says this, she says, what if Christ has no body but yours? No hands, no feet on earth but yours. What if yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world? Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. Yours are the body. What if Christ ain't got nobody but you? Friends, even if that's just partially true, that Jesus is not always waiting on us, God can move despite of us, which I believe God does, even if that's even partially true. What that means is, is one of the biggest reasons why we're not seeing more transformation in the world, why we're not seeing the church on more of the front lines of life change and uh, advocating for justice and hope and life. The reason is, ain't, it ain't because God ain't working. It's because God can't get no frickin' help. It's because the harvest is plenty. But ain't nobody wanna do it. But I'll come and I'll listen to the and I'll absorb and I'll I'll do those things. Yeah, great. You're only doing half the equation. In fact, James in the New Testament is very direct about this. He says, a faith that only does one and not the other, he doesn't pull punches. He says it's dead. It's dead. That heartbeat ain't going. So one of the ways in which we're going to have to actively, intentionally, and willfully resist against this gospel of consumerism is you've got to be someone who's willing to commit to consuming and contributing. Now, here in Luke chapter 10, there's one more. Here in Luke chapter 10, Jesus also gives us another antidote. He gives us another antidote. Verse 7. Verse 7. So he sends them out. Sends them out into the world. Sends them out to do the mission, to do the work. He gives them their first mission assignment. And Jesus, as they're leaving, says this. Now, as you're going... Remain in the house that you're, uh, you've been assigned, eating and drinking whatever they have set before you, for workers deserve their pay. Don't move from house to house what, if you don't like the food or you don't like the lodging. The, it was a hard mattress. Don't do any of that stuff. Whenever you enter a city and its people welcome you, eat what they set before you. Don't complain about it. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, God's kingdom has come upon you. Jesus says you want to actively resist The powerful gospel of consumerism in your life. You're gonna also, you're not only gonna have to consume and contribute, you're gonna have to make an active decision that your personal preferences come second to the mission. Your personal preferences have to come second to the mission. Jesus is super practical here. Now, as you go out there, don't be complaining about the food. Do you have anything grilled? This is like a deep-fried situation, and I'm just trying to slim up before beach season. Don't complain about the food. Don't go be complaining about the lodging accommodations. And here in 2023, Jesus would be saying, don't be showing up and complaining. Well the coffee Pastor, have you have you guys thought about your coffee selection? It would just be there'd be something better for my palate that would really enliven me and make me more open to the Holy Spirit. Don't be complaining about the coffee. Don't be complaining about the song selection. Don't be complaining about the children's programming. Don't be complaining about this. Make an active decision that your personal preferences, they always come second to the mission. They always come second to what God is trying to do in us and in the world. I had a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago. I graduated uh, college with him, and now he lives uh, across the country. And he messaged me because, like many people, in the aftermath of the pandemic, he felt himself disengaged. He found himself disengaged and disconnected from any sort of faith community. And he's deconstructing a lot of his beliefs about God. And he's trying to sort of figure out who this Jesus is and why is it that there's so much of Christianity that doesn't align with the person of Jesus. And he's trying to reconcile that. So he's struggling, and he's trying to reengage. And so he messaged me, and he says, hey, this is where I'm at. Will you help me go church shopping? Catch the term? Catch that? I bypassed that. I kept moving on. I said, yes, more than happy to help you. I'll do some research with you. But before I do so, I actually want to give you some homework. There's actually something you need to do. And what I encouraged him to do, he and his wife, was to sit down and to really start thinking really long and hard about when it comes to your engagement in faith communities and the religious institution and all the baggage that sometimes that carries with some of us, make a list of non-negotiables versus negotiables i gave him my list here's my list whenever if i was not a pastor if i was in your shoes or in your seats right now one of the things that i would do is i would make a list like this and i would look for a community and i would hold really really fast to the list on the left that any church that i'm going to commit to i'm going to be involved in i'm going to be a part of that work we have to align on beliefs We have to align on mission and vision. I want to make sure we're going the same direction that I feel like is faithful, given the future and the landscape of where we are religiously. There's got to be some integrity in the leadership. So when they make a mistake, are they apologizing? Are they owning it? Or are they sort of shuffling it somewhere else? Are they passing it off on me? It was my fault for misunderstanding or something like that. Growth. Am I growing there? Am I being challenged there? Am I not just receiving words of lovely comfort and wonderfulness, but every day I'm leaving like, holy cow, like I gotta be somebody different. Like if I wanna be the person that God's called me to be, I'm gonna have to go do and change some things in my life. And then finally, I give them the 85% rule. Find a community where 85% of the time, you're good. 85% of the time, you're enjoying the sermons, you're enjoying the messages, you're enjoying the programming. 85% of the time, it's meeting what it is that you need. But the other 15, it ain't. And that's actually healthy, I would argue. Because if there's 15% of it not meeting your expectations, two things. Either, one, that's a challenge for you to grow in some way, or maybe that's precisely why God sent you to us. The amount of times I have people send me emails and say, why don't we have um, like, a, like a tea ministry? We gather together on Tuesdays, Tuesdays, and tea, and we have tea. And I'm like, well, uh, would you like to lead that ministry? no, uh, Pastor, I have no desire to lead that. Um, but I just thought it'd be cool if like, we had that to offer. I thought you could give some time uh, to lead that. I was like, I don't even like tea. Um, so <laughs> it's going to require, it's going to require us to choose which list is more important to you. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. I'm going to be super honest with you for just a second. If you can't do that, This is the same thing I said to him. Same thing I said to him, I'm going to say to you now. If you can't do that, if you can't make commitments based off of the list on the left versus the list on the right, if you prefer actually making all your decisions and all your commitments based off the list on the right, might I suggest you're not actually looking for church? You're looking for Disney World. You know what I'm saying? How many of you have been to Disney World before? Most people in this room? What happens at Disney World? It's all about you. Disney's so daggum good, they anticipate your needs before you do. You'll be walking through the park, and someone will walk up and say, beverage? You're like, I guess I was thirsty. Did I say I was thirsty? Is the sidewalk bugged? What's happening? If you can only make decisions, if you're only willing to make decisions based on the list on the right all the negotiables, all your personal preferences. You're not actually looking for the kingdom. You're looking for a club or a social activity or an amusement park. You ain't looking for what Jesus is inviting folks into. So I'll close here. The only exception I'll make, the only exception I'll make on this is people who are new to faith. Faith. So if you are here today, if, this is, if you're here today and you are still new in your uh, journey, you're still new in your faith, new in your relationship with God, maybe you're tuning into this for the very first time and you're still new to faith, you're still figuring stuff out, you actually are the only people who get permission to consume and not contribute, at least for a time, at least for a time. And if you're like, I don't really actually know where I'm at with my faith, we haven't talked about this in a while, so I want to plug this again. Last fall, we launched a tool, an online tool called Ordo, Ordo, Ordo stands for order, And there is actually in the Christian life an order to our growth and our maturation in faith. And so one of the things that you'll do, if you go to orderfaith.com, there's an assessment tool that if you answer a bunch of questions, it'll kick back and say, based off what you share with us, we think you're roughly in this stage of faith. And based off of that stage, we would recommend this as a spiritual diet. And so if you go and take that and you find out you're still early in your development, you're still early in your progress, you have full permission to only consume or to primarily consume instead of contribute. For a time, for a time, then we're going to come for you. But the rest of you, the rest of you, you've been consuming only for too long, you've been absorbing only too long. And listen, some of you, as you're listening to this, maybe you're tuning, this, the, tuning in online and you're like, yeah, um, I want to keep doing that. And if that's where you are, if that's what you want, we don't have to make a big deal about it. I want you to send me a private message and I'm going to help you find a different church. Deal? I'm going to help you find a different community because I swear to you, there's an endless amount of churches out there who are built solely on giving you everything you want and everything you need. Their only mission, and I'm not trying to speak despairingly, but there's a lot of churches out there that'll do everything in their power to keep you happy. And I will help you find that if that's what you want. You just message me, I'll help you find it. But if you don't, if you're willing, if you're bold enough, you're brave enough, (laughs) or as the gospel says, maybe you're just foolish enough to trade in the relationship you've had with faith and Christianity and church that ain't done nothing for you, hadn't taken you nowhere, certainly hadn't made much of an impact upon the world around us. If that's where you are, then come on. Because friends, here's the deal. I ain't I ain't spending no more time doing that no more. First couple of years of ministry I tried everything in my power to do exactly what all the church consultants would tell you to do to attract people and then keep them forever and what I found was a it didn't work and b wasn't faithful. So I ain't doing that no more. Because of whether you realize it or not if you ain't paying attention friends the church the capital C church is in crisis. I'm sorry if this is news to you, if I'm alarming these bells for the first time for you, but the state of the Christian church is in crisis at the moment. Don't believe me? There was a study done recently with Gen Z. So, all the folks who were supposed to be handing uh, this church to in the next generation, they asked them, they said, 1 to 10, can you rate your trust in religious institutions? 1 to 10. You know what we got? 4.9. They trust banks more than they trust us. People taking their money and love doing it. They don't even lie about it. Here's an interest rate, we're keeping this much money. Good, here's a popsicle. That same study asked the American public writ large, so not just Gen Z, writ large, and only 31% said they had a moderate to high level of trust in what we do here. That's a problem. And so, friends, I just refuse. I refuse. As long as I am the pastor of this church, I refuse to lead us in a way where the only thing we're after is feeding the consumeristic enterprise and giving you everything that you need and failing to actually disciple you in such a way where you experience growth, so much so that you go out into the world and you actively work for the world you wished existed. I ain't got no time to wait anymore on any of this. The longer we wait, the more and more and more all the issues that are preventing people from actually trusting in institutions like these even wanting to come into places like these. The longer we wait, the more bound up the legacy of Jesus is going to be wrapped up in all of the things that caused them to distrust us in the first place. There are people who will drive past this church every day and they'll never come into places like this or this one because they'll go, oh, that's the place that's anti-reason or, oh, that's the place that is anti-science or, oh, those places are anti-women or they're anti-LGBT or they don't have any honest, real conversations about race. All of the reasons that are preventing people from trusting in the work that we're doing. Friends, they're only getting stronger and they're only spreading. And so I ain't waiting no more. I love Jesus too much to allow him to go down as one of these people who hates and excludes doesn't allow you to use your brain. I just refuse. I love Jesus too dang much to let him be hijacked by all that. And So if that's you too, if that ain't you, I get it. It's fine. I'll help you find your place. I swear. No grudge. But if that's you, let the revival begin. In you. In me. And in this world that is still, still, 2,000 years later, still desperately starving for good news. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.